To forgive means simply that we will not put anyone out of our heart because to do so closes us, it reduces us from being human. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Well, this evening is it for 1993. (laughs) Anything that you really want to do in 1993, you better do right now. Because this is the last of it you will ever see again. And because it is New Year's Eve and we've gathered together here to practice and to awaken in the spirit of the Buddha, the one who is awakened in every being, the potential that Buddha nature to awaken. At this time of New Year's, which is starting the next year cycle in our calendar, really, because it's quite part of the winter solstice, (coughs) I would like to tell a story. And the story speaks about going into darkness in a time of darkness. And in the darkness, coming to that which is light. When we first come to spiritual practice, many of us are attracted by light, spiritual light, if you will, in forms outside of ourselves. There might be some sacred text that we read or some image of what's beautiful, whether it's Buddha or Mary or Kuan Yin or... or something sacred or some person, some master or teacher. And we sense the reflection of that light in our own eyes and think, this is wonderful. I'd like to find that, discover that. But to fulfill the spiritual path, it's not enough to reflect the light, but rather to be the light, to be permeated, to let that which is light shine through us as in the words that Mary ended with last night, the Buddha's last words, be a lamp, be a light. So this is a story in part about finding light. We all started in the same place a long, long time ago when you were very young. You lived in the center of a star. Every particle of everything, rock, water, flower, human, has been in the same place, flaming in the heart of our ancient sun before the earth came flying out of it. The irises in your eyes, the tissues of the rose leaf, the slow giant rocks in mountain hearts were all born together, flaming, locked in the sun as it drifted like a light on the dark waters of the sky. We all came out of that same place. It's amazing, all the forms that are created out of that. And this particular story is one of the oldest stories in India from the time of the Buddha or even before when he was wandering India as a bodhisattva. There was a village and in this village was a successful merchant. That means a businessman to more contemporary language. But all the old texts talk about merchants coming, right? A pillar of the community But this man 
as he got older, began to think about the other world as is appropriate and necessary as you get older because it gets closer. In Bali, they say that young children and old people are close to the other world and the ones in the middle have sort of forgotten a bit. And because he began to think about the other world, he began to get concerned about proper preparation and he wanted some kind of, what should we call it, spiritual insurance. (laughs) So in order to have that, as it was a priestly culture, he decided to give his money to the priests and the temple, which would guarantee him some good karma or rebirth or whatever you would call it in the spiritual realm. So he decided to give his gold and all the cows, the cattle that he owned, to the temple. And he called people together. There was a big ceremony. And it was really for the fame of it and the name. At least, you know, he would get his name on the temple, right? Given by (laughs) Mr. So-and-so. You think that only happens in Jewish synagogues and (laughs) Christian temples here, huh? Should go to Burma or Thailand. Every little seat has a name on it. Now his son, as young men would do, sensed immediately the falseness of this kind of religion, that there's a lot of hypocrisy in religion. You know the story about W.C. Fields, who was, as he was dying, he was a renowned atheist, would have nothing to do with religion at all. He was lying in the hospital bed, fairly near death, and a friend came to visit him and looked in the door and saw that W.C. Fields was reading the Bible. So he kind of coughed a little bit to make his entrance known and sort of looked around a little and W.C. Fields quickly closed it up and stuck it under the mattress. And the friend came in and said, uh, uh, you know, you're not looking so well. And uh, by the way, what was that book I saw you reading? <laughs> was that the Bible? And W.C. Fields looked up and he said, just looking for loopholes. (laughs) So his son, somehow, and his son was a young man named Nachiketa, saw the falseness, the hypocrisy of trying to put your name on the temple, giving things away in that fashion as if that was really the sacred or the holy And as young people do, he saw the hypocrisy of society, which is painfully plain when you're a young person. Do you know that it was not until the, until Jimmy Carter was president not so long ago that a law was passed in Congress allowing the Native Americans to practice their religion in this country? Did you know that? that until 1976 or whatever, the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, would come in and break up Sundance and various ceremonies and and take the Indian children from the villages and send them to boarding schools to teach them the white ways. That's us, recently. We live in a racist society, not just against Native Americans, but deeply racist and divided. The law in its majestic equality forbids both kings and beggars from sleeping under bridges. That's Anatole France. So this young man looked around and he said, doesn't look so good to me, the society. Um, We offer the good life, (coughs) good car, good job, security. And yet we look often at those who lead the good life, and there's a great deal of unhappiness. The Buddha said that his compassion grew when he looked out in the world and saw beings everywhere seeking happiness and doing the very things often that would lead to unhappiness, seeking it in ways where it will never come through possessions or security or controlling others or dominating others, seeking happiness and doing the very things that bring unhappiness. So Nachiketa, the son of this man, 
when the ceremony began and all the town fathers and mothers, perhaps mostly the town fathers in those days, came and he was giving this away, his son, you know how it is with fathers and sons, taunted him and said, ah, you're not doing anything so sacred. You're just giving some old cows and some money. What's holy about that? And you're doing it to get your name on the temple. He said it out loud, which was humiliating to his father. His father said, I offer all I own to the temple. And his son said, it's not all you own. How about me? Challenged him. And his father turned to him and said, drop dead. It's about the mood he was in, only he said it in a different way. (laughs) He said it, instead of saying drop dead, he said, I give you, I give you to death. And the young man looked back at him, looked him right in the eye, as young men do, and he said, fine. He said, because he was a young man looking for a challenge, as all good young men do, you know, and young women as well. He wanted to prove himself in initiation. And if there isn't initiation, and there aren't elders, and there isn't a way for the young men and women in our society to come of age properly and show who they are in the world, then you know what you have? Gang wars. Um, Bungee jumping. (laughs) I'm serious. But much worse things than that. Bungee jumping's okay. You know, it's um, street murders and stuff like that, turf wars, because you, it is innate in us to discover who we are. So his father said, I give you to death. And he looks back and he says, fine, I will go find him. It's a good statement from a young man. Now, where does one look for death? It's not very far away. Birth and death are just here. They're always here, just right here. You don't have to look far at all, do you? I mean, things are being born and die all the time. So Nachiketa, in looking for death, what he did was very simple. He did what you're doing. He just sat down and he said, I'm going to sit here for as long as it takes until death comes. That's all it took, just to stop. And he sat for three days without moving. You know, when you enter a Zen temple in Japan, before you can go in as a monk or a nun to practice there, you are required to do what is called tangario. And that means you have to go and sit outside the gates of the temple for a day or two or three or four, even if it's in the winter, sitting in the snow, to show your sincerity, you know, and the monks kind of nudge one another and point outside and say, there's another one sitting out there, and the other one says, ah, he'll never make it, or she, you know, and they watch out there and see if you're still there after two or three days. (laughs) And finally, when you sat and sat and sat, they say, hmm, this is a real one. Let's let them in. In some of the monasteries where I practiced, there was a practice called mastering a posture which meant that you, at certain points in your yogic training and meditation, you learn just to sit and not get up or stand. I stood at one point for 18 hours. I just stood there from morning, night, and through the night again to the next morning or sort of midday after the midday meal. Or you sit just all day and all night and don't move. And there's pain and then there's fire and then there's flames and you feel like you're burning up and you're dying and you're desperate and and so forth. And all... Every fear that you have comes, and then it all kind of opens and something else happens. This is not an initial practice. I'm not recommending it to you. But it speaks about meditation as a process of initiation. That when we come here, a lot of people in the world couldn't stand to do this. (laughs) I know some of you can't either, but that's... (laughs) So, Nachiketa, what did he do? That's why retreats are so powerful, is because we don't do anything. No reading, no writing, no talking, no nothing. You just sit and walk and be with yourself. Very direct. So he sat for three days and three nights and didn't move. And in not much time arrived at the kingdom of death and said, I would like to see Lord Yama, the king of death. 
who is also called the, the administrator of the law. And they, people he encountered there said um, they were only his assistants, pestilence, war, famine, and depression. <laughs> they said, can we help you? He said, yeah, I've come to see Lord Yama. And they said, he's not here, he's out collecting rent. <laughs> Which he does. And, and so Nachiketa said, that's fine, I will wait. I will wait however long it takes for him to come back. Kind of an unusual young man. So finally death returned, and his assistants, pestilence, war, and famine, came up and said, there's an unusual young man here. You know how most people run when they see you? He has come seeking you out, not running, but come to see you. And Lord Yama, death says, how long has he been here? And they say, three days. So Lord Yama goes up to him and says, forgive my rudeness for tarrying so long. I understand you have waited three days to see me. And the young man says, yes. And he says, then, for each of these days that you have had to wait, I offer you a boon. You may have three boons, three wishes. From steadiness and presence comes blessings. And he said, because you've been so steady to see me, I offer you three boons. What would you ask? These are boons for your journey, for I see you are a young man on a journey. The first thing Nachiketa reflects, and he says, I ask forgiveness. It's a wise young man. He said, because there was such angst with his father, he said, let my father's heart be free of anger. Let him see me with the original purity of heart as the day I was born. It's a beautiful wish, isn't it? And a wise one. Because when he asked forgiveness, he understood that to begin this deep journey of descent into the dark, to seek some new light in the center of our being requires healing. Healing of the betrayals of the past, of the grief of the past, of the barriers of our heart. It is the light of life to forgive. For forgiveness permits us to grow, to change. And there's so much that we each have to forgive. The world is always forgiving around us. Winter forgives, or spring forgives winter, and summer forgives spring. Everything lets go of the past to come anew. And same is in our heart. Mercy and blessing. You know this poem from Rumi I read sometimes. He writes about the priest who prays for the thieves and muggers on the streets. Why is this? Because they've done me such generous favors. Every time I turn back toward the things they want, I run into them. They beat me and leave me in the road, and I understand again that what they want is not what I want. Those that make you return for whatever reason to the Spirit, be grateful to them. Worry about the others who give you delicious comfort to keep you from your prayer. So in forgiving, we see that what's been given to us, even the sorrows, are often the things that awaken us. It took this to awaken us. Someone said that forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. <laughs> Uh, you like that. So forgiveness is an act of letting go. It's saying, all right. And it doesn't mean we condone injustice. It doesn't mean that we forget. It's simply not carrying the burden of resentment and hatred any further. 
We may say never again. We may put our, we may say, I will put my own life, my own body in harm's way to make sure this never happens again. And yet we can forgive. To forgive means simply that we will not put anyone out of our heart. Because to do so closes us, it reduces us from being human. I'll tell you a story. I was on the... I know I'm telling you a story. (laughs) I was on the train from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia to go to my father's funeral six weeks ago, about six weeks ago. And I came into the train car. It was kind of crowded. And I looked around to see who I might sit with. It was interesting. First, I looked to see if there were any really beautiful women. Um, But there weren't, with single seats next to them. And then I looked, and there was this very interesting-looking African-American man. I said, well, that'll be interesting. So I sat down. And it turned out he was interesting. His name was... Robert Brown, he'd been in the foreign service in India, so he knew about Buddhism and Hinduism a bit, but he quit the foreign service. He said when one day he was called in the carpet in the embassy, um, and they got really upset at him for overpaying his servants because they had really extended families and were very poor, and he was giving them a lot of money. And they said, you're ruining the system for all the rest of us. And he said, I knew that the foreign service was not for me. So now what Robert Brown does is he works in the District of Columbia with juvenile justice. Not in the government, but there's a court consent decree giving money that needed to be allocated and only the courts would say that it absolutely had to be um, to the young men who come into the prison system in Washington, D.C., which is a war zone in many ways. And he'd studied African uh, ritual. He knew some Buddhist Hindu things. He'd done a lot of uh, human potential things. He was a very wise man. And he said, I work with initiations with these young men. I run a big organization that does that. And his own specialty was to work with the young men who had committed homicide. He said, and you wouldn't believe working with some of these young men, what beautiful young men they are. You couldn't believe sometimes talking to them that they could have done that. He said, but I tell them they have to face the truth of their life and what they've done. He said, I brought in pictures one day. I got the coroner to make me up great big color photos of bodies after they had been shot or killed. And I brought him in and he said, I said, you guys are tough. Let's look at these. And I put them around, and they couldn't look at them. Anyway, he said, I want to tell you a story. (laughs) I said, yes. He said, there was one young man in my juvenile justice system, he said, who had killed another black, another um, black man, a young man, on the street for nothing. and went to court and had a trial and was convicted of murder. And in the court, the father of the young boy who died looked at him after the conviction was over and said, I'm going to kill you. And then he was sent to prison. The father of this young man who was killed then started visiting the murderer in prison just to visit him. And he started bringing him things, cigarettes, money to buy stuff, things he might need, getting to know him a little bit. young man was kind of wary, but he kept coming, offering him, asking if he needed things, and finally befriending him enough that when it was time for him to leave, he said, what are you going to do? The young man said, I don't know. He said, I'll get you a job. And he found him a job. And he said, Betty Lee, where are you going to stay? I don't know. He said, why don't you come live with me? I'll give you a place for a while. So he let him stay with him. And after he had lived with this man, whose son he had murdered, 
for several months working at this job. The young man called, the, the, the father called him in one day and he said, I would like to adopt you as my son. And he said it in this way. He said, in Africa, where our people come from, it's said that if you kill a man's child, you must replace him or her. And when I said to you in court that I was going to kill you, I meant it. But what I meant was I was going to kill that young man who could destroy another young man and not allow there to be such a young man again like you on this earth. So you must replace my son, and my way of killing you is to invite you into my family and ask you to be adopted as him. Forgiveness is a great act. I mean, without it, you have Bosnia and Afghanistan and East Los Angeles, wherever it happens to be. And as central as forgiveness is for others, even more so, it's central for ourselves. To forgive ourselves the suffering we've caused to others, the suffering we've caused ourselves, we have so little mercy And so little compassion. So the first thing that Nachiketa asked for, he said, may I be granted forgiveness. What a ground for spiritual life. Just as Mary spoke of letting go last night, one could do the practice, I forgive. So many things, I forgive, I forgive. With forgiveness... Life is renewed. We come alive. Then Lord Yama said, what would you ask for your second boon? Nachiketa looked back at him and said, I ask for the fire of life. An interesting wish. And it has a lot of meanings in these scriptures, in these old stories. It means the breath or prana, life force, kundalini sometimes, fullness of energy, of openness of body and heart and mind. It means passion. It means awakening of the passion of dharma, of life. Not just getting through the everydayness of life. Remember, he was a young man. Young men are not interested in just getting by and paying the bills. You know what I mean? Or young women. But they want something more. In our one of the men's retreat I was leading, there were different animal clans that we were part of, the snake clan for the elders who were wise and sort of the guardians, the nagas. And the lion clan for the young men, kind of hot and red and fiery. And the heron clan for the men in between, because the herons stand in the water and there's a sort of sorrowful quality. This was the called this was called the group for the men who have mortgages, right? <laughs> okay. He said, I want the fire of life. You know, there's a wonderful book I read this year. Um, it was actually made into a movie recently as well, but, uh, called A Far-Off Place um, by Lawrence Vanderpost. And it's a story of the escape of a young uh, bo- boy and girl with the help of two bush bushmen, a bushman and his wife, across the Kalahari Desert. They're running from um, the destruction of a revolution and gunmen and so forth. And they finally escape and they get out into the middle of the Kalahari Desert where they can't be followed and they're asleep under the stars at night way in the midst of the desert. And all of a sudden, they hear a lion roar. And Shabo, his name is, the bushman starts to get up next to the fire 
and dance and weep and say, it is he. And Francois says, who is it? He says, it is old black lightning. It's the, the bush people knew the different lions by their sounds. And Francois, the boy in there, who considered himself an expert on the roar of lions because he'd grown up in the bush, then says, the three most beautiful things to be seen or to experience on the earth are a falling star, a full rainbow from horizon to horizon, and the roar of a lion Francois then said, you know, he reflected, he said, I've never, ever heard a lion roar quite like this one because the lions who roared in the bush around where we lived near the human settlements somehow had lost their innocence. And only now do I know what it's like to hear a lion roar out where a lion has not been tampered with by the community of man. I read that passage and it reminded me somehow of what we've lost, a connection to instinct and nature and life itself. And so when Nachiketa asks for the fire of life, it's really the reawakening of the senses, of sensing what we most value, Rilke writes, you see, I want a lot. Perhaps I want everything. The darkness that comes with every infinite fall and the shivering blaze of every step up. So many live on and want nothing and are raised to the rank of prince by the slippery ease of light judgment. But what you love to see are faces that do work and feel thirst. You love most of all those who need life as they need a crowbar or a hoe. You, you have not grown old, and it is not too late to dive into your increasing depths where life calmly gives out its secret. So this is what he asked for. And when we sit here, life comes to us. Sleepiness, restlessness, loneliness, fear, boredom, arise, the hindrances that we all know, anger, longing, joy, calm comes, then another wave of longing, fascination, curiosity, creativity, then being lost in all of that. And those, none of those are bad things. What we're asked to do is sit and open to all that is alive. There is a deep longing in us to be alive, to bring ourselves fully to life. It's part of what brings us to spiritual practice, to find that presence, to awaken. And this isn't fighting or struggling against, but it is a kind of surrender or opening with the heart. You know, this last year, I taught with Joanna Macy at one point, who I respect a great deal. And Joanna had recently come back, she and her husband Fran, from doing some of her despair and empowerment teaching work, especially around the nuclear dilemma of our civilization in Russia. And she had returned from the city Nova Somethingsk, <laughs> the city that is the closest to the Chernobyl nuclear reactor where people still live. It's a city of 50,000 people, not far from the Ural Mountains, I guess, or the whatever the mountains are there. And around the city are these beautiful hills and mountains. And for thousands of years, the people who live there have gone into the mountains to hunt, to pick wild mushrooms, to picnic, to cut wood, to just be with the trees and nature. And now, 
in that city, those who come back, they live in their apartments and the windows have seals around them and then they go to work and the windows and doors have seals around them and they have posters of the woods on their walls because they can't go out. So she had a meeting and gathered together, she and Fran, the mayor, town council, some of the elders of the community, to talk about what was really happening there, how many children were sick and had died and what had happened to the people. And they talked for a while, and finally she looked at the mayor and she said, how long will it be before you can go back into the forests? And he said, not in my great-grandchildren's lifetime, and not in their great-grandchildren's lifetime. And then one of the women sitting there became very angry. And she said, how dare you come from America? You know, we have so much struggle and suffering and stir it up and make more that we have to sit here and do this and talk to you about this. How dare you do that? And Joanna and Fran just sat there and said nothing, just waited. Can you imagine that moment? And finally, one old man spoke up and he said, well, at least, at least we can tell our children that we spoke the truth. And then an old woman spoke up and she said, yes. And we can have these people come to be with us so that they can know our suffering and go back to the world so that we can bear witness to what has happened to us and we can tell our story that it might not happen to their children, that they can go out and say, never again can you let this happen to your community, to your forests, in your country. So when Nachiketa asked for the blessing of the fire of life, he was asking for that capacity to be alive in the midst of everything. George Brock wrote, Art, that which is beautiful, is a wound turned to light. What is to give light must endure burning. So Nachiketa said, I ask for the boon of that presence, that fullness to awaken in the midst of all things. And it's quite literal. I mean, it's what we do here together in our practice. All these things come and we sit with them and name them and acknowledge fear, joy, anger, love, one after another, our pains, our desires. And then the light that comes. He has a third wish, doesn't he? So Lord Yama says, you have one more. What do you wish for? And Nachiketa said, for my third boon, I wish for the secret of immortality. Amaravati, the deathless. And Lord Yama looks at him. Remember, he's become kind of his mentor now, his benefactor. To take death as an advisor is a very skillful thing. It's, it's the first meditation instruction, one of the first meditation instructions given to a young monk or novice or nun is when you ordain. This is a fine guide. So Lord Yama is now his benefactor, his teacher. He says, are you sure that's what you want? He said, remember, this is your last wish. You could have anything. He said, for example, and he shows him young maidens. How about that? Celestial maidens. How many would you like? For a young man, it's tempting. He looks at Lord Yama and says, what else have you got? Right? 
Lord Yama shows him this wonderful golden chariot, which is sort of like showing him a Ferrari, the Ferrari of the day. How would you like, you know, a red Ferrari and the wonderful maidens, the beautiful maidens and so forth. He says, what else is there? He says, you could have a palace, servants, honors, a queen, um, children, grandchildren, a great army to follow you. Would you not take any of these? Nachiketa looks at all the possibilities in the store. And then he says, Lord Yama, before I decide, I must ask you a question. Lord Yama says, yes. He says, will not all of these things that you have offered to me pass away into your domain? And Lord Yama says, yes. So the young man looks back and says, I want to awaken to that light which is unshakable, unalterable, that which is deathless. And Yama, sensing him to be a true yogi, says, then I shall grant your boon. And here is my gift to you. And he offers him, he reaches back, and he offers him a mirror. And he says, if you wish to know that which is deathless, you must meditate to find that which is deathless. You must meditate on your own true nature and answer one question. Look into the mirror and ask yourself, who am I? In Zen, they have this question in different forms. One way the koan is asked is, who is dragging this body around, right? Or what was your face before you were born, before your parents were born? Kusan, this great old Korean Zen master, came here during one of the three-month retreats. Were you here for that, Rodney, when Kusan came? It was the end of the three-month retreat. People had been sitting and walking, sitting and walking, paying attention, doing their Vipassana very, you know. And he came in, his robes, old guy, and he looked around. And he sort of was, got the tour, and it was time for him to speak. And he said, this practice you're doing, been wasting your time. <laughs> Not a good practice. Can you imagine, right? He said, wrong. This won't liberate you. He said, there's only one practice. And he kind of thumped his stick down and yelled, what is this? What is this? This? You just ask that question. Confused a few people. But it's really the same practice, if you will. He didn't know that, of course. My teacher in India, the old um, uh, Bidi Baba that Rodney and I both spent time with, Nisargadat, he used to shake his head. He would say, you have no idea who you are. You think you are the food body, you know, that you're made of tomatoes and, <laughs> and vegetables and hot dogs and things like that. Or you think you are your thoughts. Or you think you are your personality. Or you think you are, you know, a man or a woman or, you know, old or young. He said, you identify with everything so easily and you do not know your true nature. What am I? There's thoughts come and go. Sounds come and go. What is this in the midst of all of this? As Ajahn Chah says, paying attention, the knowing that arises because of meditation is above and beyond the processes of body and mind. It leads to our not being fooled by the thinking and the imagining and the identification with everything. You recognize that all that arises is merely a movement of mind, all the thoughts, and that the knowing is not born and doesn't die. What do you think all this movement called mind comes out of? What we talk about is the mind. All that activity is just the conventional mind. It's not the real mind at all. What is real just is. It's not arising and it's not passing away. 
So this is to find, he said, find your Buddha nature, to Nachiketa. Look and say, is this what I am? If it passes away, that's not the deathless. So the Buddha rests there. He says, I consider the position of kings and rulers as dust motes. I see the treasures of gold and gems as broken stones. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds and the great Indian Ocean as a drop of oil at my foot. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. The still point to find that place, to rest in that. So Kali Rinpoche says, you live in illusion and appearance of things, this old Tibetan Lama. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand this, you will discover that you are nothing. You're not your thoughts, your body, your feelings. They all come and go. If you were your feelings, you'd be this for a little while and then that. If you were your thoughts, it would be worse, right? (laughs) Even being your body is not such a good idea. He said, you take all these things to be who you are. There is a reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. So to find that, to rest in that being that is nearer than near, there is nowhere to go to find it. Then in that place, all that is shines for us. Thomas Merton put it this way. He said, Life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a nice fable or a story. It is true. So it's not through our efforts, not what we gain or lose or possess or have or don't, or what we accomplish or do. All those are a beautiful part of the dance of being human. That's kind of part of our nature. But the awakening of the heart in the midst of them, to be a light, as if a lamp that was overturned now illuminates the darkness. Again from Thomas Merton. He says, then it was as if, it's like looking in that mirror that Nachiketa has been given, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. The depths of their hearts where neither sin nor knowledge could reach. The core of reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more need for war, no more need for hatred, for cruelty, for greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. So Nachiketa took the mirror and he began to look into this question. What is this? Who am I? What is that which is undying? My true nature before I was born. Now I'm almost to the end of the story for tonight because he began to discover that which was timeless through this meditation, through this practice. But in coming near the end, I leave you with a question to consider and we'll consider it together for a little bit, but not completely. When you go into the darkness when you go to the domain of yama, when you let yourself forgive everything that sorrows, when you let yourself bring all of your being to the moment, to life, and when you look deeply, who am I? And you find that still point, that light, that which is timeless. As Nachiketa did, he there he was, and he'd found that place. What then 
brings Nachiketa back to the world? Is the question. I give you a hint, a couple of hints to start with, and then maybe we'll talk about it more later in the retreat. One day, some time ago, when I was working in a kind of spiritual therapy that I do or have done with people, which is really just sitting with someone, being mindful together, a woman came to see me who I had seen for some time, who had a history in her past of grave abuse and pain. And she'd done a lot of work with that. She'd done various kinds of healing and various kinds of groups with women and forgiveness work and body therapy and so forth and come a long way to hold herself with forgiveness and compassion and others, or at least started that way. But she came in to see me that day and she said, you know, I've done this work and now I can kind of live a life a bit before I was just, I couldn't live. But I'm still mostly afraid, most of the time. And I'm still often depressed and easily angry. I get angry all the time. What should I do? And it felt like there was some ripeness to that time. And she said, yeah, I alternate. I get angry and then I just feel kind of depressed or dead. And it's not as bad as it used to be. I can function. So I said, well, let's see what this is about. Let's really look into it. And I asked her to close her eyes and feel where she was, her body and her experience, just as we do as we sit. And she said, I feel angry this stuff has been happening. And I'm also angry that that all this pain doesn't go away. And I said, well, let yourself feel the anger and begin to name it. Anger, anger, just to sit with it. See what it does. You name it, that's the first task. And then you see what it does. Does it get bigger or smaller, turn into something? I said, name it. Anger, anger. What's happening is you name it. Rage turned into rage. I said, how big is the rage? Said, Very big, fills my body. I said, fine, sit and let it fill your body. Rage. Going on for a while. What's happening? She said, it's more, it's strong, I can't stand it. I said, well, let it be as big as it wants. How big does it get? Oh, bigger than my body. You know, burns down San Francisco. I said, how big do you want it? You know, let it be as big as it wants. How big does it get? Oh, bigger. It's like a bomb. How big a bomb? Nuclear explosion, right? Okay, how big? Blow up the state? Oh, the planet, the earth, the solar system. I mean, we're talking rage here. I said, let it be as big as it wants. Bigger, bigger. She said, it's just a sea of fire. So she sat with that for a while. And then she began to look very sad. And I said, what's happened? She said, it's burned out. It's dead It's cold. It's ashes. And everything is still and has died. And she said, this is how I feel a lot. And I said, fine. Feel it. She said, I feel dead. That's why I'm so frightened of this anger. Because this rage, it will kill everything. I said, all right, well, you've killed everything. Might as well rest and see what happens. It's dead. Nothing will come. It's like this forever. It's horrible. It's isolated, cold. I said, fine. Let it last forever. Just be in that. How big is it? The whole universe, dark. Stay with it. So it lasted. I said, how long has it been? She said, seems like a long time. I said, fine. Let it be a hundred years, a thousand years, ten thousand years. Still like it. Fine, a million years. Ten million, fifty million years. Still dead. So fine. This is now ten minutes has passed, right? A hundred million. 
500 million years. So we're just sitting there. I said, just, she said, forever. I said, let it be forever. Finally, she started to shake her head. I said, what's that? She said, oh, she said, there's some little light over it, way in the horizon there. I said, you don't want to see it? She says, no. I said, fine, let it be dead for a while longer. Another 50 million, 100 million, 500 million years, now a billion years, okay. It's dead, just absolutely dark and dead. Starts to shake her head again. I said, what's happening? She said, the light's getting a little stronger. I said, do you want to see what it is? She said, well, I guess I better have to. So she went to the far end of the universe. And there, at the far end of the universe, the light turned green. She said, there's a planet. And I got closer. She said, I get closer to it. And it's got water and earth. And there are green things growing on it. It has plants and animals and people. And even after a hundred, hundred million years, something else came to her. That's the first hint. In meditation, <laughs> there grows, as we sit and practice, a very wonderful quality which is the quality of trust. A profound trust and a profound sense of freedom that the breath breathes itself and that the world of the 10,000 joys and sorrows unfolds with every kind of story. A trust that even in the darkness, the darkest time of the year, that the sun starts to come back again. And when that trust comes to us, as we sit and awaken and forgive and rest in the midst of all things, let go, we can begin to sense that wherever we are, wherever we sit or stand, is that which we seek. It can be nowhere else but just here. And so I end with a little bit of a description that most of you have probably read years ago in your spiritual journey from Black Elk, standing at the time of his great vision, the great medicine man of the Sioux. He said, then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole circle of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shape of all things in the spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many hoops that together make one circle, wide as daylight and starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. But you must realize that anywhere is the center of the world. And anywhere is holy ground. So let us sit.
And as we sit and walk together in this season of long nights and darkness, as it says and is recited from the Tibetan teachings, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, remember the clear light, the pure, clear, white light from which everything in the universe comes to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own mind, the natural state of the universe, unmanifest. Let go into the light, trust it, rest in it, merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. And as you sit and walk, There is the experience of the breath and the body, the thoughts that come and go, liking, disliking, all the conditions of life. And then there is that rest in the midst of them all. As we end this year and begin the next, may you rest in that still point, in that place of knowing and peace. (laughs) 